Hey, Adam. Hey, Dave. Today is an exciting day, isn't it? It sure is. But wait, I forgot. Why is today so exciting? Because we've launched our customer education manifesto. A manifesto? Yes, that's right. You know, just how agile software developers created a manifesto back in 2001 that shaped the future of the industry, we've spent some time and pulled together insights and six key principles into a short statement about what modern customer educators like us believe. Well, it's 2020. It's about time for a manifesto. I love it. Six key principles? Sounds super concise. Where can I find it? Did we nail it to the door of a church? We did not, and those are theses, right? Oh, silly me. (laughs) But seriously, we made it pretty easy for you to find. It's right over our website, customer.education, and if you look at the top nav, you'll find a link for a manifesto. Click that, and you'll be right there. Well, that's great. I can just click that and read the manifesto. Oh, it looks like I can sign it, too. Cool. And that's right. That's really important to us. If you go in and read the manifesto and you feel like it resonates with you, sign the page. We're going to add your name to the list and you can show that you're in this elite group of modern customer educators. Oh, geez. I I better hurry up and sign. Something tells me you're already on the list. (laughs) It's not like we wrote it. Welcome to C-Lab, the customer education lab where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and exterminate the myths and the really, really bad advice that's out there that stops our growth dead in its tracks. I am Dave Darrington, and today I am joined by a very special guest, Maria Manning-Chapman. Hello, Maria. Hey, Dave. How are you? Great. And uh, you are the VP of Education Services Research the TSIA. So we're really thankful to have you. Um, let's, let's kick this off with some, a little bit of fun like we always used to do. Uh, the, we do the International Day Of here, and I picked a couple of relevant days of today. One is this is Professional Speakers Day, which that's relevant. You know, yes, we've both is. done that. <laughs> and then here's one I really like. The, the, apparently, this is Particularly Preposterous Packaging Day. <laughs> You know, that crazy Amazon box. (laughs) I I don't know. I deal with that all the time. Like, how do I get into this thing? Oh, now I need to return it. But you know what I got to say about that? People are really clever with packaging. I got a a monitor, a 32-inch monitor. And, you know, obviously it comes in this pretty slim box. Hmm. You know, pulled it out. And I was very intrigued because they had the styrofoam around it to protect it. But then there were all these little compartments in the styrofoam. And the oh. various cords were in these cutouts in the styrofoam and the, the stand portion. And I thought, that's very clever. Now, the problem is, don't try and get all that stuff back in the box. <laughs> Because it's not going to happen. Because then I had to, to, to send it back. There was a problem. And it was like, oh, my God. How did they get everything in the box? Because I can't do it. Yeah. How do they do it? I don't know. That yeah. is, it, it is. It's, it's, it's curious. I, I wonder what it's like working at those companies designing boxes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. For sure. And then you have to teach the people how to package it. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of teaching. Let's get into this a little bit. Uh, Maria, I was, I was glad to be able to meet you for the first time in person at SkillJar Connect last year. Uh, that was fun. We didn't have too much time, but we, we had a good introduction. So now we're here and we're really thankful to have you here today. So 
I want to lead in because of a few things. It, it, we've been listening to you, and we're, I was on your podcast on Wednesday, which was fabulous. Uh, uh, earlier this this year, you released, I think it was February, uh, your State of Education Services 2020, which we devoted an entire episode to. That was episode 38, which we'll have links in the in the show notes. Um, and and we want to get deeper. We really want to position you to talk to our audience. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, just real briefly, your background, how you got here, um, and and anything interesting before we get into the formal podcast? Yeah. So, you know, I am not one of those people in life who, uh, you know, I knew at the age of 10, I was going to be a doctor. (laughs) So I, I haven't had that kind of logical progression in my career. But what I can say is, is it has always been education related. Although by degree, um, my background is in clinical psychology and counseling. Uh, and then in between the bachelor's and the master's, I got a teaching credential. So I actually started uh, teaching in elementary school. And I was single living in the Bay Area at the time. And after three years, said to myself, gee, <laughs> if I want to survive, I need a real job. And clearly, anybody who's come out of academia knows, you know, uh, there's a lot more money to be made in high tech. Let's just put it that way. That is true. So I went down that road and just said to myself, okay, what skills do I have that are transferable? Um, I was teaching sixth graders and I thought, okay, teaching sixth graders and teaching adults, not all that different. Mm -hmm. So let me try and make that, you know, transition into the high tech world, which I was able to successfully do and started my career at a semiconductor company doing technical training, which to me is laughable. (laughs) Seriously, uh, anybody who knows me knows that I am like the least high tech person in the universe. I always say, give me paper and pencil because I know how that works. Yeah. And, uh, and I was doing technical training and, uh, Uh, in a fab. So I loved it because I learned everything there was to know about uh, how to manufacture a semiconductor. So it was fascinating to me. And so I was a technical trainer for about six months. And then I was asked to manage um, the um, internal technical training organization. And so did that for a few years, uh, then moved to a mainframe company Oh, wow. Where I was also doing training um, in their manufacturing organization. So uh, at that time, that was all internal training. And then in, geez, I have to think, 1996, I think it was, I went to a company called Veritas Software. And that was when I made the segue to customer-facing training. So since 1996, I've been doing hands-on customer, well, I shouldn't say this whole time, from 1996 until I started the job at TSIA, which was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So from 1996 to uh, 2010, I was managing um, customer-facing education organizations. So I managed delivery, managed content development, yeah. uh, managed the entire um, education function. And then about 10 years ago, uh, a friend of mine, said, hey, you know, there's this company called TSIA, you know, and they're looking for somebody. And so I talked to Thomas Law, who's uh-huh. a lot of folks who've been to our conference 
uh, conferences are familiar with Thomas, uh, interviewed, and here I am 10 years later. That's, I really like this story because I think like many, many of us who, how should I say, we, we kind of fall into this yeah. world where, but I think if you were to actually set out, Maria, to do to get to where you are today, and same goes for me, Adam, many of the people that were in our in this educational world, there are a lot of them like us that just gravitate to it. You know, it, it yes. ends up being a secret calling. Yeah. Um, I, I share a story that I had as uh, I, I had a neighbor who became really close friends. She was a an elementary school teacher. And mm -hmm. actually, I, I correct that she's a middle school teacher. And she said, Dave, you found your inner teacher. You're, you yeah. found your inner teacher. You found your spirit. And you usually have that in you. Yes. When and, you get into this. And that is absolutely the truth. And for me personally, you know, I'm very curious by nature. And mm -hmm. because of that, I love to learn. And so I think that that is what is inside of me is I love to learn. And because I love to learn, I want to help others learn. And although my job at TSIA, I'm not quote unquote you know, training in the practical sense, right? Uh, by virtue of doing research, you know, having conversations with you and other people in the the education world, I'm constantly educating myself. You know, and that's my data, yeah. and all of that I turn into you know reports and webinars and blogs and things that get communi communicated back out. You know, to the the education industry. And I think it's that natural inclination I have to always want to learn more mm -hmm. that after 10 years has kept this job interesting for me. Yeah. You stay at some place for 10 years and it's still interesting. That's phenomenal. That, that yes. is, you're blessed. I am. I, always, <laughs> I, I am. I, I, and I know that for sure. Uh, we should all be so lucky. Well, <laughs> you've said a lot right in here that I think really frames up our discussion today in and let me do a little bit more exposition here and say, for our community, for our listeners, if you're a listener out there right now, what C-Lab is, and it's very much like what you've said for, for you and for the TSIA, you know, we're learning. We don't know everything. We're trying to connect. We're, we're a network of people. But where, where, where we're really interested in talking with you is uh, customer education is both new and not new. It has elements that draw from all of these disciplines. Like you mentioned, you've had background in psychology and education. You worked as, at a semiconductor fab and all these different things. It, we're called into this, this motion of customer education where it's new is that you're often coming out of customer success. Now we're trying to get to scale. We're trying to help our company grow up. And we're ultimately evolving into what I think is that educational services entity. And, you know, Adam and I have had this very strange parallel career over the past five so years where we started off at a very small entity. Actually, it was pretty middle sized. And then we both came to smaller companies. And then we both came to bigger companies that are transitioning to grow up right, right. fast. Yep. That is such an interesting thing. And I talk to people all the time that are, well, what do I do? How do I start? I, I was a CSM and now I'm I'm training people or yeah. I was just an instructional designer that only focused on what people gave me with this and built the script. So I don't know about all this other stuff and how to connect and how to learn and how to grow. So that kind of frames up where we're at. We're, we're a little niche down, but we're growing to where 
we're, we're growing into the market that you talk to. And I think you're reaching back out to us and well, let's meet in the middle. So that's what I wanted to do today is let's, let's connect and, Absolutely. and really dive into some of this. Like I want to understand our audience wants to understand more about what is it at educational services? What is it we need to know as we grow up and become, you know, you know, big educational services folks or not, you know, what, what can we learn from that? Okay. What I would say is a starting point Mm -hmm. is the mindset. And I think this is um, what is missing in younger, either younger companies or younger education organizations and how they think about education. Uh And what I would say is whether it's you're just forming your education organization, you've been around for a couple years, you've been around five, 10 years. I don't think it matters. I think the focus is how do I run this like a business? Yes. And you don't have to be revenue generating to run it like a business. And I would say that is one of the, um, weak points that I see when I talk to members who are at companies that are, again, have newly formed or or fairly young education organizations. They tend to operate as cost centers. And because they operate as cost centers, the people running the organization are not really thinking about how they need to run it as a business. Mm -hmm. And, And it's so important because you have to think about things like, how am I going to go to market? You know, how am I going to get this product in front of my customers? How am I going to keep them coming back and consuming more? How am I going to progress them from, you know, this little nugget of learning to this big entire program or class of learning? How am I going to get them to get a certification? And you have to approach that by thinking of it as a business and not just, oh, I'm creating content and people are getting trained. Yes. And that is fundamentally a, a radical transition. It is. It's, and, and I felt it in myself. Um, it, we're kind of talking around our first point here. So we're just organically going to this. So we're talking about be really understanding what it means to run a business, to be an educational services team or department or what have it. But we grow up not having to worry about those right away. When, right. when I come into an organization, Rio, so the first thing I do is I do the lay of the land. I'm like, what have I got to work with? Uh, in pretty much every case where I've been, it's been somebody had been in there and they put some stuff together. Right. There was no packages, there's no costs, there's no anything. Right. And then my team's looking at me like, I'm drowning in training or I have no place to start. So what we've organically learned and now we've structured into, we created a manifesto to talk about how we do it in our little circles, you know, how we're growing. There's, there's a strategy here. And I think this is the missing piece. This is the Holy grail. When people always ask me about like, well, how do I, and we're going to talk about this in our next point, we're, we have this maturity continuum. We're, we're getting to revenue, but then some of it's not. And that's where a lot of confusion is. But we're, we're, let's start talking about that, that maturity continuum. You know, like you say, look, can you talk about a little bit more about, you know, the members you have, where they're at? Um, what kind of information do you have? Like, I think you've got some statistics or some numbers here because you are research, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, what can you tell us about? Um, 
your membership and like more, a little bit more about your the business model perspective? Yeah, so uh, it, it has changed. I will say that when I go back, like I said, I've been now uh, 10 years with mm-hmm. uh, TSIA. We have done something since that time. So, so just to back step a little bit, when I first joined uh, the company, there was no education services research practice. It was, it was nothing. Hmm. So I then had to, to build it up from, from the nothing. And we currently have about 85-ish, 90-ish education services members. Wow. Uh, so, so yeah, yeah. Now, our larger disciplines, you know, like support uh, and then their professional services, if we look by size, support has you know, like 200 and something members and PS has like 180 members. Uh, but I'm in that higher grouping, so I'm I'm at least proud of that. Yeah. One of the things that we did, and and not just me, every research practice area at TSIA has a benchmark. So the great news about the benchmark, there's about 130 questions. We uh, encourage every new member to participate in the, the survey and folks who have been members for years and years, we encourage them about every two years to redo the benchmark. But from that, I have lots of data. And my point about bringing that up is when I look at the data 10 years ago to the data now, there, there is a shift. And I would say that shift is largely based on X as a service companies. Yeah. And and the pendulum's one way, and I know the pendulum's coming back. And and here's where it's going and where I think it's going to be coming back. So when I started doing the benchmark 10 years ago, I would say 65 to 70% of my members were revenue generating. And when I say revenue generating, I, it means, you know, your revenue margin and profit positive. Mm-hmm. And then the remaining percentages were, you know, a handful were break-even, another handful were cost centers. Over the last two or three years, I have seen that shift a bit. And it's because my membership now is, you know, regularly we're adding X as a service business model companies. Yeah. And clearly their business model is different. And one of the things that is different is that an X as a service company tends to go out the door with free training, which means mm-hmm. by default, most, not all, but most of those member companies have uh, education services organizations that are cost centers. So the way the numbers are, are breaking out currently is about 20% of my membership is uh, operating as a cost center. Okay. 20% are break-even and about 55 ish percent are revenue generating. And then the leftover percentage is, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think, and but here's the, the other side of that coin though. Most people who are in break even, the conversations I'm having with them are how to move to being revenue margin profit positive. Most of those who are cost centers are asking, okay, how do I at least move to break even? Mm-hmm. So there is that natural progression to move from a cost center to break even and then eventually into revenue generating mode. Well, let me ask you a question, Maria, then. 
again, around this with your cohort of, of people that you work with on a day-to-day basis, where would you say on average that company size would, would orbit around? Like, are you, you know, 100, 250, 500,000 larger? Where, where, where is your demographic core at? That's, that's a hard uh, to great question. I have that data in the benchmark. I don't know it off the top of my head because we that's one of the questions we ask is how large is the company mm-hmm. that you work for? Um, if I and the way we break it out in the benchmark is we combine small, medium, uh-huh. and, and then large. And a large company is defined as 5,000 or more employees. So not okay. looking at the size of the education organization specifically, but the size of the company. And I'd say it's about 60-40. So probably 40% of my population is in that more than 5,000 employees category. And uh, the the other 60% is somewhere in that small, medium bracket. And then by default, when we look at the business model, you know, cost center, break-even, or um, uh, revenue generating, there is some correlation to size. Most large companies have large education organizations, and mm-hmm. those do tend to be revenue generating. But it doesn't necessarily mean because there's a small company with a small education organization that they're a cost center. So I have some percentage, obviously, that are cost, but some of those smaller, newer companies are in the revenue side. And, and I'm going to get on my soapbox here for, for just one minute. Go for it. <laughs> because I'm all about the revenue. And, and, you know, and I don't, I don't say that because I'm a money grubbing person. <laughs> um, but here's the analogy that I use when I have conversations with people, because one of the conversations I often have with new members that are coming from X as a service companies is, is what should we do? Should mm-hmm. we monetize? Should we be free, et cetera, et cetera. And the analogy I always use in this conversation is, you know, think back to those days when we were all teenagers. And you had to go to, yeah, you had to go to mom and dad to ask for money to go to the movies. Uh-huh. And then think about the day when you got that first job at, you know, the pizza parlor, McDonald's, wherever it was. And now you had money in your pocket. Uh-huh. You were self-funding. You didn't have to go to mom and dad anymore to ask for the money. You had the money. And for me personally, that is the number one reason to be revenue generating. Because, again, if you're thinking of education as a business, your job is to always grow the business. Right. You need money. You have to have money to invest in your growth. And the problem when you're a cost center is you're back to being a teenager. It means you have to go with hat in hand and you have to, you know, circulate through the company, trying to find somebody who wants to put some money in the hat for you so that you can go grow your business. And so that's why I'm just a huge advocate of being revenue generating. You want to be able to fund your own growth. If you want a new platform, if you want to be able to scale, you want to build a new offer, you want to go to market through, through, uh, you know, automation or, or different programs. You can't do that if you don't have the money to invest in yourself. So, so that's the, the, the one thing on the revenue side. And then the other 
is uh, the other half of my soapbox <laughs> is, is what I call the fallacy of free training. And the conversations that I have with people are they believe that charging for education is a barrier. And if we charge for education, then they're not going to get trained. So then they're not going to use the product, which means then we're not going to help drive product adoption. Mm-hmm. And the point I always make to people is free training is no guarantee of consumption. And whether you're free-based or you're fee-based, the, the pivotal point in that is you have to have a consumption strategy. Right. And, and if you don't, whether you're free or fee, you're, you, know, you can have training until the cows come home. If you're not getting people to consume it, then it really doesn't matter. Uh-huh. So, uh, so that's why I always say to folks, it's not an, a free or fee conversation. It's a free and conversation. Because in a, a well-run organization, running it like a business, it, 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 it's a strategy that combines those two things to successfully get training into the hands of your customers and to keep them engaged so that they use your product more, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. I, I absolutely love these analogies and they're really resonant with me personally right now and professionally, and I think with our audience. And it, it, let, me, let me take a moment to respond because I think both of these points you made about, uh, number one, I love the teenager analogy. I absolutely think it's appropriate to us because you know, where I come from, I'm coming out of a su- customer success organization, a very small business who's yeah. growing rapidly. And I, I was there. I yeah. was there. I'm suffering. I have, at one company, I, it was just me, right? I was a, yeah. a, a gain site first and I had a team of three people. And then as I was transitioning away and I was leaving the company, I, I get more and more. And, and I'm like, wow, this is really cool. I can do a whole lot more, but we didn't have paid programs. So it was very right. hard to scale and grow my team. Yeah. And I was that, hey, I need more help. I need more help. Well, uh, <laughs> but the conversation yeah. of fee hadn't been had yet and we weren't quite ready at that in that environment and every environment's very different yes it and is. then i went to a company called Azuqua, and they were a very small 50 people company startup tech hard tech and uh it was i wanted to experiment with that role and it was 100 a freemium model a free model and but but the goal that i was there for was not necessarily the same because we knew we were aiming to sell the company. So I my see. goal was to get everything out, get everything down, make it such that the product was easier to learn. And then we were off. Well, the company got sold and acquired and I transitioned to outreach. But now, okay. here's, here, here's where I'm at now. And this is why I really appreciate talking to you. And, and I think this free and fee, right? Let's yeah. say that as a mantra, everybody on the line, yeah. you know, sub-vocalize it, say it out loud, scream it. It's both fee and free. It's exactly. both. Um, let me talk about another story I have here because like you, I've had a very strange career that's led me here. And at one point in my life, I had a passion for running events. And those events were video game tournaments, which ended up going pretty up market. So it's, it was really weird, but, but I have, I, I, I like, 
like connecting and building things, which is a yeah. common theme. And I'm sure you're there too, um, whether it's education or games. Here's the problem that I had there. I had to learn very early on about the, you need to charge a price. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to your podcast or your, I'm sorry, your webinar last night that you had on Wednesday. And you were, you were talking a lot about, you know, how am I going to be charging for these programs? And you were getting to this premium concept. Right. Yeah. And oh my gosh, that is th- this, this thinking, any of you who are listening right now really just need to sit down, take a pen and paper and just think about where you want to be. Yep. With with this company I had, and again, this is not education, but it was an education for me. I had a, had events where, okay, I have a, I, I'm doing this on my own. I have a very small business. It's a hobby business. I have a full time job elsewhere. I'm trying to make everything. I'm trying to do this in a way that we continue to make a little bit of money to be able to pay the bills and to grow. Yep. So, but if again, I'm working with largely teenagers. These are the kids that want to come and play. Counter-Strike, Overwatch, whatever, and they don't have a lot of money. But if I, f- I found that if I didn't charge anything and I made a free event and I had sponsors pay for the event, mm-hmm. then I had low attendance because they're mm-hmm. like, eh, eh, I don't really feel like going today. I don't have any skin in the game, so right. I'm not going to go. I agree. Right? Yeah. So, but, but then when I pivoted that and I said, now I introduced a hierarchical model where I have an early bird special. So I, I introduce the events and I say, hey, we're going to have this event. If you sign up now within the next month, you get into this price. Then, then yeah. it goes up to this price, but then it's this price. Um, we, we have a limited refund policy that lasts up to a month prior to the event. And after that, you have to talk to me and you have to have a really good reason because I'm not going to give you a refund. And that completely changed everything for me. Absolutely. I no longer had to beg sponsors and the sponsors were like NVIDIA and, you know, like EA games, like all these big gaming companies, even the U S army wanted to give money to us, which was surprising. Um, and, but they would say, here's a check for $5,000. And at the, at the end I was getting thousands of dollars to give away for prizes and to support the infrastructure of the event. But I was also making a decent amount of money. You know, we call that gate. Like what, what revenue do you take in for admission, right. which, which I just used and put back to have fun stuff, right? right. Uh, exactly. The sponsors paid the bill, the, the participants got the benefit of that. So that was a life lesson for me that I'm coming to realize what you're saying and, the, and this uh, uh, fee and free mantra is important to us as customer educators now because yes, we're growing up fast. And what we need to do is really sit down and think about, okay, well, so, so let me talk about me real briefly, my team. I have a group of five trainers and they do live and virtual events. Like we would be traveling a lot and we have traveled a lot, but can't. And then I have three instructional designers and be, between them, you know, the instructional designers are really my cost center, but the trainers are not. Right. And we're, we have been pivoting away from giving away free training to fee-based training. And, and I'm looking at, I'm watching your podcast going, yes, yes, yes. That, because that's expensive. That's, it, it's yeah. heavy when you take somebody and you want, like you were saying on your webinar, if anybody hadn't had listened to it, I think you can still get the recording. It's really good that you, you want to think about, okay, it's, it's expensive to send a human being somewhere and have them be in front of you for an entire day or two and interact and, and do all the things and prepare and, and follow up. That's a lot of work. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of work. And, um, and you know, and, and for me, again, what I think about is 
there's also value in that, in the experience for the learner. So why shouldn't that come with a fee? I mean, to me, it just makes sense. You're getting an instructor. You're getting somebody whose knowledge is at your disposal. Mm -hmm. So going back to that webinar, that's why I think of that in that category of premium. And when you look at offers, and, and I would say generically this about most education organizations, they're good at creating content. They're mm-hmm. not good at creating offers. And I would have folks just sit back and think about it because content is not your offer. And so when you think of your offers, to think of them in three categories, you can have a free offer a standard offer, mm-hmm. and then a premium offer. And I want to take just a minute to define free because I know people are probably thinking, well, what's there to define? Free is free. So let me tell you the distinction I make, and, I, and it's an important one because it, it has everything to do with strategy. Mm-hmm. So when you think of free, I'm, I'm running my education business, and I say, okay, I'm going to create this five-minute video for free. That means I have intentionally, and that's the important word, intent. The, my intention is that this video will be a free video. Right. Or it could be you have a subscription offer and you say, okay, on this offer, it's, it's largely fee-based. However, I'm going to offer a 30-day free trial. And yep. then on day 31... We want to convert them to a fee-based offer and, you know, or a, a two-week trial with, you know, whatever the time span. Right, right. So, so those things I have done with intent. So this next thing I'm going to describe is not free training. And, and what this scenario is, is you have training, it has a price tag, and your sales guy discounts it 100%. Uh-huh. That for me is not free training because number one, intent, the intent was it has a price take and right. the sales guy's giving it away. And, and there is no strategy there. There is zero strategy. Whereas when I consciously say, okay, I'm going to have this offer or, you know, this uh, webinar or this piece of video, and I am consciously saying it's free, then I can build my free fee strategy around that. I can't build a strategy around salespeople or just giving my product away for free. <laughs> we all haven't ha- have had that happen to us, haven't we? <laughs> exactly. That's why I mention it, you know, in case, you know, people are thinking, oh, well, my guys, you know, my salespeople are giving it away for free. So that counts. No, it doesn't because it is not part of the strategy. Right. This is, this is gospel, and, and it, it's part of the thinking that I think a lot of us in customer education now actually need to be more rigorous and do, mm-hmm. and sit down and think about strategically, where am I going? What am I going to look like, not just next month, but six months, a year out? And I've done this several times now. I've had to think about, you know, in, with intentionality, where are we headed? How are we going to build these packages? And it is, it is exceptionally hard. It it is really hard. Well, let me use this as a point to transition though, because I think we're on the precipice of now talking about, again, 
we're kind of talking about an evolving, maturing organization. You know, maybe you started when the company was 50 and you're an XAAS company, right? You know, whatever you're selling as a service and you're growing fast. I know at Outreach, you know, people, people talk about the airplane, building an airplane in flight, yes. building a rocket ship in flight. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's so fast. So we're, you know, bringing things together, but fortunately we have a great team and, and people are thinking this way. We've been t- having this talk. Now, here's the thing that comes up to me um, today is, you know, I've been in a couple of organizations where I first reported in and I started in customer success formally the SVP of customer success. It's palpably different from being in a services org where I live now. And that happened a couple of times. And now what comes up is this question where, okay, Dave, today we need to talk about what is the ROI? What is the return on investment for your team? Okay, that, did, that question didn't come up six months ago. Now it's coming up. And, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, goodness. Um, Fortunately, I have data. I have a lot of it. And I have that correlated with Salesforce accounts, all these activities. I have a lot of information that I can learn. But I, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how we can demonstrate that ROI, right? And, and this is kind of packed inside that free and free discussion we've already been having. How do, how do, we, how do we really express to the value of our organizations what we're doing? Yeah, so... so- let me go back to the revenue for, for just a second. Sure. Because I would say historically, education organizations tried to validate their worth based on the fact that they were generating revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and while, as we've talked about, that's definitely a good thing. You want to be self-funding. Um, when you look at numbers, so as an example, if we look at, product revenue generated, so not everything in the company that generates revenue, but just product. If you look Mm -hmm. at that dollar amount and you then look at those revenue generating education organizations, the revenue contribution to the bottom line from education is about 2% of product. So the reality is, is even when you're revenue generating, so again, you want to be revenue generating to self-fund, but it is not how you're going to prove your worth to the company. So, so uh, and, and this is true, whether you're an X as a service company on premise or something in between, and most companies are somewhere in between now. Right. What you have to start looking at is what are the metrics that are important your company. And I'm going to guess for most people, it's going to be growth in ARR, so annual recurring revenue. Spot on. Going to be things like customer retention, product subscription renewal rates, driving down call volume into support because support costs a lot of money, Mm -hmm. uh, improved CSAT or NPS, you know, the customer success side of the business, etc. So it starts by going to your executive level management and asking, you know, what are the top two metrics you have? Top three, whatever it is. And you may already know that. Mm -hmm. So let's just say for the sake of discussion, it's, it's, you know, product subscription renewals and, and CSAT and PS customer SAT in general. So if, if those were the metrics, then 
where you have to start is looking at the trained population versus the untrained. Mm -hmm. And that's a continuum. You might have somebody who took the onboarding training and hasn't touched training since as compared to someone or a company where they've been diligent, they followed the learning path, they progressed from this to the next to the next, they've gotten a certification, et cetera. So so it's a continuum for sure. So I'm just going to generically say trained, untrained, or moderately trained. Okay, that's fair. So let's separate them into 100 we have 100 over here who are companies where people have been trained. We have 100 over here who they've done very little or nothing. And then look at the data. So then if you have access to Salesforce, this is where it does help to have some integration with other corporate systems. Um, if you're not integrated, then go to whoever can get you the data and look to see, okay, who's renewed in the last year? Of this list of 100 people that I have that did a lot of training, how does that look for that company in terms of the renewal? Did they renew? Did they not renew? Et cetera. And then look again at that same data information for the untrained. And I'm guessing you're going to see that companies that have not invested in training, maybe just did the onboarding, haven't touched anything or done much sense, that the renewal rates are lower. Now, it doesn't mean that that's all because of training. And that's where people will say, well, we can't say that it was just because of training. And it's like, no, you can't. But you mm-hmm. can't say training had an impact because you know that it did based on the fact that there's a group of people who had no training and the renewal rates are lower or are different or aren't as good or whatever. So the reality is, is education is probably never going to have the resources to be able to get rid of all the noise and to control for all of the variables. So what I see is inertia. People say, oh, well, you know, causation versus correlation. Well, who cares? Correlation is good enough for me. It's better than nothing. If I can show that an account that's trained has a greater likelihood of subscription renewal than a company that isn't trained, that works for me. Mm -hmm. And then you have to be able to position that with executive management to say, hey, look, we had 100 here and 100 here. And in the situation where people trained, the renewal rate was 90%. And in the situation where people weren't trained, the renewal rate was, you know, 80%. Well, that means something. It does. And, it's a lot. and the biggest problem I see across the board, big, medium, small, old education organizations, new education organizations, is the lack of the collection of that kind of data and then doing the necessary analysis to show some of those correlations. I, I'd say that's the number one failing of most <laughs> of my education organization. They collect data, don't get me wrong. Most of it's operational data though. It's not what I call impact data. And you need that. Yeah. You know, if uh, there, there are some themes in here that, uh, first of all, Maria, it, it, you and Adam in particular, Adam was talking a lot about this causation for correlation versus causation thing. You know, we have talked very much around this whole thing. This, what 
you've packaged up in this just few moments of discussing the ROA is our call to action, I think. Yes. That this is insanely difficult on one level. If you were to go, I had a talk with a friend of mine who's a data scientist, and he said, he actually, I gave him my data set, all of our data from our LMS and other inputs, like what do, what do my trainers do? What's my CSAT? What's all this stuff? stuff? What are all my data sources? And I gave him to him and he goes, oh my gosh, I'm so, it's like a, a kidney candy shop. I mean, this is so yeah. great. Oh my gosh, I could do so much with this. And he said to me, well, we talked specifically about correlation versus causation. And, you know, Adam said, you know, who cares? If I could show there's a light correlation, there's yeah. any kind of correlation, yeah. if you took training versus not, it's as simple as I show a dashboard in Tableau or whatever I use that says these accounts had training, these accounts did not. Here is the uh, time to, to deliver you know, first value. Time yeah. to first value is a term we often use in success. Here is ARR, you know, of, of one versus another. It, you, you correlate all these things or you put all these things out there and even without decoupling and, and right. out the noise, you can say right. that's a big difference. A- absolutely. And, and I, I'm in 100% agreement. And I think that, that folks just need to take that first step. And I yeah. know it's hard to do. I know getting the data, you know, is challenging and yeah. systems are, are, are challenging. I know, especially on the LMS side, I think LMS, uh, the LMSs are improving in terms of, of getting better data. Uh, but do, I, what, what I want to say to education organizations is don't let that be the excuse anymore. Mm-hmm. Because if you truly want to be able to impart value, that's where it is. Your company is going to care if they know you're helping to drive product adoption. You're helping to drive ARR, you know, any of those variables. And then, you know, that's, if you're looking for funding, that's a great place to start. If if you're in a company that's saying, oh, well, you know, you're, we're we're not going to fund you or we're going to give you limited funding, et cetera. Or you want to make the business case to say, hey, we want to move to revenue generating. Because to do that, you still need an investment somewhere. Right. That's a great way to do it. This is what we're returning to you as a company. That's worth something. That is worth a lot. And I have to say that you're you're spot on saying that this is hard. It takes a lot to do. It does. And and in fact, you know, at Gainsight, at Azuqua, at Outreach, all the last three opportunities of you know where I worked, it that was one of the first things I did. I'm a data person at heart. I mean, I've got degrees in computational chemistry. So I love data and numbers and I love crunching numbers. That's rare. I know. Yes. Um, But at the same point then I think, well, when I entered into my last position, I said, where's all of our telemetry? That's the big word. You know, where's the product adoption data? Where's my LMS data? Are these in, in my data warehouse? Can I get to them? Can I run reports off of those and what other platform? And I've, I've finally done that, but it took me half a year. And that yeah. was not just because, and because it was very complicated because there's a backlog. Uh, how did we do it? What are all the pieces? So one big portion of your job to get to ROI is start today. Start now, get, yes. get everything connected, and then you can start measuring and, and showing. That, and it's exciting because well, I'm going to tell you a little story earlier on. I went to 
and actually th- this whole conversation we're having now is what got me passionate about customer education and and getting to the numbers gainsight i did generated some dashboards adam worked on a platform and optimizely one of uh, and that's why we got together about this there's a product in here a way to say connect to salesforce connect to this connect mm-hmm. to your lms these are the proxy metrics we care about um and 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 this is it shouldn't be so hard, but it, it, it is because integrating all that data is the challenge. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, this is another thing I always say to members. The, the one job position that you need to put on <laughs> your list, a data analyst. A data analyst. Because it's a full-time job. It's not a part-time job. Oh, yeah. And, you, and, and, you, and yes, and, and you probably know from the amount of time that, that you spent you know, doing what you did at Gainsight and, and other companies. It, it truly needs to be someone's full-time job and someone who likes data. Because what's interesting is even though I'm in a, a research job and and you know I deal with data all the time, I'm not inherently a data person. It's it's not my thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I I understand the value of data though, because it's so much nicer when I can go in with data versus an, an opinion. Mm-hmm. And uh uh, so from a headcount, so anyone out there who's listening and thinking about, okay, I need to grow my education organization and I need three instructors and five of these and two of those, please add to your list one <laughs> analyst because it's, to me, essential uh, and, and becoming ever more essential as more companies move to X as a service business models. I'm smiling so big right now because this conversation I have all the time. And, <laughs> and in fact, I, I primed the pump a little bit myself because I know enough about Tableau and, yeah. and data analysis where I said, well, I had all my data sources I, and my, my uh, manager was asking me, can you run some numbers? And I go, yeah. So I took that opportunity to actually craft some dashboards that I can continue to use rather than do it once in Excel. Right. And, yeah, exactly. Folks are like, "Oh my gosh, that's yeah. interesting." And I go, "Yeah, yeah. this is why I, would, I can yeah. really use help from an analyst right now." Yep. Uh, and 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 honestly, I'm not complaining. You know that that's something I know how to do, so I, I do it myself. But I, I that's resonant with me, and it should be from everyone, even somebody part time. What I usually do is say, "Okay, here's the structure of the things, the fields I've got. This is the data sources. This is the stuff I need to get. This is what I'm driving to." And I show a picture of this dashboard and this dashboard and this report and, you know, like things, who are our top, top accounts consuming training? How, who are our abusers of, of live training? Who are the people that might be having right. more than they should? All these questions you should be yeah. able to look in your, in your, um, you know, business informatics platform and be able to extract instantly. And then you do that with, with intention and then say, these are the things that I care about most. And this is what drives ROI. And before long you start getting this, it, it, things start to become more reasonable and easier to do because you have the resources. Like I've, I've been able to use that data to go to my management and say, you know what, my, it, it's not just hyperbole now. I'm not, I'm not just saying, oh yeah, I need more help. I know my, my trainers between this time and this time have done X amount of training and that's ridiculous. They're exhausted. Right. They're tired. Um, it's going up and look at the trend line. There's, yeah. this is over a year. Oh yeah. We're getting you some more people. Thank you. It was a very yeah. easy discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I say data versus opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you have something tangible to be able to put in front of people to, you know, build your business case. Yeah. So, 
It's uh okay. So I think we beat that one up. ROI is important. We we both know it. We're in lockstep here. So if if you have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out to the community, and and we'll talk more. But let's let's wrap up with hopefully an easy one, and, and this should be light. I, I'm just really curious, and we don't hold you to anything about where we're headed. You know, as I've listened to, I've read your report, and that came out earlier this year. I was on your your webinar just the other day. And you're doing really great work with research to show where we are and what the landscape of our world is and how it's shifting and changing over time, particularly with COVID. That's yes. not going away. Right. I'm, I'm just curious. This is, of course, speculation. What do you think 2021 or the rest of this year in 2020 is going to, to bring? Are we going to be seeing more virtual instructor-led motions, less travel, uh, something new that we haven't ever thought about? What, what's your thoughts? Yeah, you know, that question I'm asked probably, you know, at least weekly. You know, what's the future going to look like? (laughs) We don't know. But uh, a a survey that Thomas, who I I mentioned earlier, that he did, oh, like in the last few weeks, uh, asked at the company level, so not specific to education services, but at the broader company level, what do you think, you know, the future is for your workforce? And uh, the projection that came out of that data was that companies are kind of like us right now, speculating that about 60 to 70% of the workforce will remain remote. It's amazing. So if we use that kind of as a basis, then I think, yes, you know, most certainly um, the pivot is towards all things virtual. Uh, uh, I I think personally what I would like to see is more of a a blended learning. You know, again, I I see a lot of ors versus ands. Uh So what I mean by that is look at, Here's content, you know, step-by-step how-to basic kind of content that could be the online component of your course. Yeah. But then you blend in the virtual instructor-led so that they get access to an instructor and they have the opportunity for hands-on lab work. So that it's not the thing. That's premium, right? (laughs) You know, you... Well, see, that's where you start looking at it and you say, okay, if it's online only, that would be a standard offer. If I have online and I'm going to give them a a lab environment and I'm going to give them an instructor, then you're right. Maybe that's not premium plus, but you're moving in that premium direction, but you start thinking about how to tear it. And, And that it's a bit of both because I'm a firm believer of don't underestimate the power of the human in, in learning. And I see that all the time. And yeah. it's evident in people's preference. As much as we want to push them to online learning and we want to push them to the virtual environment, the reality is face-to-face, either on-site or in a classroom until you know mid-March of this year, has always been the, the number one option. And now, out of necessity, folks are gravitating to virtual, which is good because I think this is a bit of the try it, you'll like it scenario. Yeah. Folks, you know, think, oh, if I can go to a classroom, I'll just do that. Why do I want to do it virtually? Now that they've done it, it's like, oh, 
<laughs> like the example you gave at the beginning, you know, people just, there were people there the first day and then they decide, well, why am I here? I can just do this thing virtually. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it will be a blend. I, I believe the default uh, for classroom will be the virtual instructor led environment. And that's based on the data. When we look uh, at what folks chose to do, for example, when they had been registered in an instructor led course and, and given the option of converting that uh, classroom registration to a virtual uh, instructor led delivery or the same course offered online, yeah. The conversion rate was much higher to the virtual. So I think anything and everything folks can do to optimize that virtual experience, you know, think about what do you need to do to make that the best experience possible. I, I certainly think um, that will be part of the future. And I do think the other part is moving anything that is that face-to-face, I can touch you, see you experience into that premium category. And then those companies that are interested in that uh, can take advantage of it. If, they're, if yeah. they don't want to, they can pay less and, and uh, uh, have the, the you know, virtual experience. Um, you know, and I think it's really about getting creative. This is where I think it goes back to packaging. So, you know, our, our, our packaging discussion at the very beginning for International Packaging Day. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever the category was. Uh, I, on International Packaging Day, I would have everybody in this call think about packaging. It is something that I think is so overlooked. And, and I think in the future, that's what folks need to do. That's where you can get creative. And um, on the webinar that I did a couple of days ago, I talked about you know the whole supersize me approach. Yeah, I love that well, story. That's, think of that. What can you do to add value to your offers? Um, what things can you swizzle and, and mix together in a way that you haven't before? Because you're trying to you know, get the attention of your customers. You want them to come to the training. So you have to make that interesting. And it can't be just, I have good content. I have good instructors. Yeah. Everybody says that. So, so um I think that's part of the future as well is, is okay. I, I, I have this set number of things to work with because budgets are tight, but what can I do with them that's unique or different so that I can, you know, create a new thing, you know, and that's one of the things that uh, Thomas, when uh, he does briefings on this subject, uh, when you look back to the, financial crisis in 2008. Mm -hmm. The people who came out of that successfully were the people who said, I'm investing in the future. Not, I'm just going to sit here and wait and see what happens. So what I say to folks is, clearly nobody knows exactly what's going to happen, but think about what you want to have happen. What behavior do you want to see from your customers? Do you want them to go to virtual training more? You know, maybe it's augmented reality or or looking at how you can use virtual reality in your training. I do have some people who mm-hmm. are moving in that direction or even AI. You know, how can I take AI to create a custom learning path? You know, so I think those things 
and leveraging technology um, is definitely, you know, going to continue and, and everything virtual for sure will continue to be, uh, uh, you know, over the next six months to a year for sure. Oh, I love this. You know, I wanted to, to, to kind of wrap this up because we're actually getting to the point where we should wrap up. <laughs> the creativity mm-hmm. thought that you had. So this is something, and let me connect some dots. It was a little prescient that we were talking about the, you know, the packaging day thing. I didn't really think about that or connect the dots, but I'm glad you did because it's true. <laughs> we, we need to extrude this fabric of education that is not just a typical motion, right? We, here's, here's what I object to, even with my own work, and I'm being self-critical, that's sometimes really boring. And, and I can't, some, the first time I build something, it might be that way. I try not to make it that way, but necessarily I have to get it all out the first time. I have to build this stuff because I'm pulling things out of people's heads. And particularly in the, in the SaaS world, people are running blind. CSMs are training. Everybody's doing training, but it's not organized or structured. It's just happening. Yeah. So my job is to gather that and then channel that energy, bring those voices in, build a program up. And make it be interesting and exciting and build that into the fabric of the DNA of the company so that it doesn't feel intractable or too hard or boring or, you know, whatever. So speaking to that, there are other things that I think we as educators should all start doing. I'm bored and burned out with Zoom. I'm going to admit that. It's too much. I do it every day. I'm like, oh, another Zoom call. Well, hopefully as we start to open things up, we should start thinking about different kinds of educational motions, but they don't, we don't have many verbs. Um, something that we experimented with once was Twitch. So Twitch is a gamer platform, but it's not as much anymore. And But the thing about it is that I would get on Twitch at my last position and just sit sit there and do training live. And I would make mistakes live. And I'd struggle with things live. I was very transparent and open. It was very humility, or humbling, I should say, not humiliating. Um, but people were actively helping me and talking and interacting with me all the way through. And it was a motion I never tried before. In the, the, the call to action there is try new things and experiment, right? That's what we're all about at C-Lab. We're a laboratory, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a scientist. I think like that. But there's other things you could do. For example, one of my recent jobs, we went and we were very strong partners with Tableau. So we did a kind of a, a game jam, you know, a jam where we got together and we tried to solve hard problems together in a whole workshop day. But that necessarily you know, required a prerequisite was that people go through some of our training. And But then we got together and we did cool things. And the learning that came out of that was fundamentally different and much more engaging and fun. And then, you know, in spirit of today's International Beer Day, we went out and had a drink and talked about the experience. And it was sticky. And and, and, and we bonded. And now that now then we also don't think as much about community. So do you use your community or have a network of people where you have user meetups and groups? You know, education is not all just about the traditional motions. It could be all these other things. And like you go to an event. I have people always talk, can you do training at an event? Well, I'm going to do training at an event that's the same as the training I do online every day. Let's do something different and fun and, and get, you know, I don't know. So again, many thanks, Maria, for the work you do for our community and for joining us here today at the C-Lab Podcast. And before we go, make sure to check out TSIA. So that's just www.tsia.com. Now, 
If you want to learn more about us, again, we have a podcast website, which you may have already found out. It's https colon slash slash customer.education, or you could just type customer.education. There, you're going to find a lot more. We've been adding additional show notes and other things. We've just launched our new manifesto. And on Twitter, I am at Dave Darrington. Feel free to reach out to me so we can have great discussions. Special thanks to Alan Cota for our theme music. And if this helped you out, you can help us out by subscribing to Apple Podcast, Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, or the podcaster of your choice. And please, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcast because that helps us even more. Those things really help us expose our podcast to other people and help us keep this going. So to our audience, thank you very much for joining us today. Get out there, educate, experiment, and find your people. Thanks, everybody.